Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Learning about history is one of my favorite personal pastimes. Maybe it was growing up in Boston, Massachusetts that got me hooked at an early age. Now, as an entrepreneur in my own right, I love having a reason to dig into the history of business. It is absolutely appropriate to say that the more things change, the more they remain the same. We may be looking at digital transformation and AI instead of perfecting the ability to preserve food or bringing words such as robot into the English language, but the struggle to innovate never changes. Everything we do today is built on the struggles and inventions of the past. In this week's show, we'll be remembering a number of key stories, innovations, inventions, and firsts that took place over the years between August 16th and the 20th. In our main story, we're going to look at a global communications milestone and the dedication that was required to make it possible. No, I'm not talking about Zoom, and you're welcome for that, but it was world-altering all the same. On August 16, 1858, President James Buchanan received a very important message. In this case, the content of the message wasn't nearly as important as the method of transmission used to get it to him. The message read, Europe and America are united by telegraphic communication. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, goodwill to men. The message was from England's Queen Victoria, and it was sent as the first transatlantic telegraph message. Although the message was short, it was no text message. It took 17 hours for the message to be sent and received. And while that seems ridiculously long by today's standards, it was a huge increase in speed at the time. In the 1850s, the best alternative to the telegraph was to send a message by ship, which took 12 days. So 17 hours was pretty zippy. The idea of connecting the United States with Great Britain via telegraph was first floated in the 1840s and 1850s against an explosion of telegraphic communications capabilities. In 1844, publicly funded telegraph lines connected Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and were used to share the news that Henry Clay had received the Whig Party's nomination for president. During the late 1940s, new lines spread like wildfire and telegraph offices opened all over the country. There were new lines and extensions being added all the time, and by 1850, there were about 12,000 miles of line from 20 companies in the United States. In this same year, England and France were connected by telegraph. It seemed just a matter of time before the United States and Great Britain were connected. 
But before that could happen, someone would have to step forward and own the project. That person would be Cyrus West Field. Field was an American businessman born in Stockbridge, Massachusetts in 1819. He struggled early in his business career, which was focused on operating paper mills. But there were already signs of the determination that would make him so successful later on. For instance, he was a junior partner in a wholesale paper firm that went bankrupt in 1840. Rather than walking away from the debts, he paid off every single one despite the fact that he was not legally obligated to do so. One of the creditors wrote him a letter back that read, Your only inheritance was a load of debt cast upon you at the commencement of your business life, which was not caused by lack of foresight or fault on your part. You bore up under this heavy burden and paid it as not one in thousands could or would have done. And by this very act, you laid broad the basis of your subsequent success. And successful he was. Cyrus Westfield would go on to become one of the richest men in New York. But back to our story. In 1856, Field and a group of other entrepreneurs founded the American Telegraph Company and immediately began raising funds in the U.S. and Great Britain to lay a telegraph wire under the Atlantic Ocean. The cable would need to cover a distance of over 2,000 miles, sometimes at a depth of two miles down. Needless to say, he was not successful on his first attempt. Or the second, or the third, or the fourth. It was the fifth attempt that took. Four British and American vessels, the Agamemnon, the Valorous, the Niagara, and the Gorgon, met in the middle of the ocean in July of 1858 with their loads of cable before departing for predetermined points. The message sent from Queen Victoria to President Buchanan on August 16th would seem to be a happy ending, even if it did take five tries. But as any entrepreneur today will tell you, it rarely works out that way in practice. The initial cable only worked for a few weeks, but in the time that it did work, 732 messages were sent via the transatlantic cable. The signal quality quickly declined, becoming so slow that it was nearly useless. It was destroyed in September when Edward Orange Wildman Whitehouse, the chief electrician for the transatlantic cable, increased the voltage from 600 volts to 2000 volts while trying to increase the speed. It didn't work. Instead, he fried the insulation off the cable and it was completely dead, along with Whitehouse's career as an electrician. In an official investigation that followed, he was found to be responsible for the damage to the cable, even though it already wasn't working all that well. But don't think for a minute that stopped Cyrus Westfield. He went right back to fundraising, this time with at least temporary evidence that the cable could be laid and it would work. It took him six years, but in 1866, the British ship Great Eastern successfully lay the first permanent telegraph line across the Atlantic Ocean. At the time, the slogan for the service was, two weeks to two minutes, comparing the speed of a ship to the speed of a telegram, which had clearly increased from the 1858 speed of 17 hours down to something more like two minutes. Field wasn't done investing or innovating, but he never again achieved the success he had seen with the transatlantic telegraph cable. He died in Stockbridge, Massachusetts in 1892 and is buried there beside his wife. His tombstone reads, Cyrus West Field, to whose courage, energy, and perseverance the world owes the Atlantic Telegraph. The next innovative milestone I'd like to share is also communications related. 
with a fun connection to my monthly show on Supply Chain Now, Dial P for procurement. On August 20th, 1896, J. Keith and the Erickson brothers, John and Charles J., applied for a patent on the dial telephone. Interestingly, this new invention replaced the push-button phones which had already been introduced. They were considered inferior because the signal was not solid enough for accurate dialing. Push-button phones would be reintroduced again many years later, with improvements of course, and replaced the dial telephone, often referred to as a finger wheel in its early days. As much as we all appreciate the multifunctionality of smartphones, there is still something uniquely gratifying about the slow dial and return of a rotary phone, especially when you're using it to dial P. From communications milestones to an entirely different industry, let's move on to the birthdays of two notable fashionistas who changed substance and style for women at the turn of the 20th century. On August 18, 1883, Coco Chanel was born as Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel in France. She is credited with revolutionizing women's fashion, taking them out of the stiff, corseted look of the 19th century and into the power-styled, sportier look of the early 20th. After pursuing careers in millinery, or hat-making, and the theater, she opened a shop that was an early run at a luxury boutique on one of the most fashionable streets in Paris most likely funded and supported by a string of high-profile lovers, all of which she had tumultuous relationships with. Coco Chanel is the only fashion designer listed on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. But, as happens so often in history, she seems to have risen to professional notoriety despite living a somewhat raucous and edgy life. She was a partier with many loves, and lovers, as I've already mentioned, and was a regular morphine user later in life. Her association with Nazi Germany during World War II has raised more eyebrows than her chic silhouettes and gorgeous ropes of pearls. In the end, it is uncertain whether she was really a German operative or whether she just had a weakness for aristocrats, especially since she was a favorite of the British Duke of Westminster as well. As she said herself, quote, in order to be irreplaceable, one must always be different and there is no question that Coco Chanel was both. Our second fashion-related business birthday is Hazel Gladys Bishop, born on August 17, 1906. She was an American chemist who founded her own cosmetics company and invented the first long-lasting lipstick. In 1951, she became the first woman to appear alone on the cover of Business Week. Younger than Coco Chanel, she wasn't dating aristocrats during World War II. Instead, she was working as an organic chemist at Standard Oil, designing fuel for use in wartime aircraft. The idea to start her own business after the war came from her mother. Bishop perfected the formula for no-smear lipstick in her own kitchen. Over the course of two years, it took 309 experiments to get the formula right. No-smear lipstick was first sold at Lord & Taylor in 1950 for $1 per tube, completely selling out on its first day. She felt that cosmetics were serious business and endeavored to make them, quote, an integral part of a woman's total wardrobe rather than a manifestation of vanity, end quote. She too had a troublesome track record, albeit of a completely different kind than Coco Chanel's. She ended up being ousted from her own company after a fight with the majority stakeholders in 1951 
and was prevented from creating or marketing cosmetics products under her own name for the rest of her life. As the saying goes, women who behave well rarely make history. And I wish a hearty happy birthday to both Hazel Gladys Bishop and Coco Chanel, ladies who rocked the boat, wrote their own rules, and absolutely made history. Well, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. And be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. On that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History.